Welcome everyone to the Every Other Thursday podcast, where in each episode we bring you suggestions for improving the guest dining experience and our industry roundtable, where we tackle the industry issues of the moment. Every Other Thursday is an approximately 30-minute presentation featuring our industry experts who are never shy about offering up their thoughts and ideas. Every Other Thursday is brought to you by TabletopJournal.com. Tabletop Journal, where we celebrate the products, the people, and the places in the world of hospitality tabletop. Now, here's your host of Every Other Thursday, Dave Turner. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Every Other Thursday. And by the way, for those of you who are counting, this is episode number 19 of Every Other Thursday. And today, it's a blistering hot July afternoon, and we're glad to have you all with us. I'm Dave, of course, and I'm your host here at Every Other Thursday. And this week, it's a little unusual. I'm here with my colleague, Greg Kirsch, as always, but my buddy, Jay Alley, our buddy, is not here. So we're usually joined by the lovely and the talented Jay. He's on assignment, as they say. But Greg, it's just you and I, you and I today. How are you doing? Glad to be here. Do you think we'll survive without Mr. J? I think we will. At least for maybe one week, but I wouldn't go much longer. <laughs> well, I've got to tell you, on today's episode, I'm really, I'm excited as I, as I can be because we've got another great guest on, but I'm a little nervous too. I got to be honest with you. And that is that we've got Philip Preston from PolyScience on, PolyScience Culinary on. And this guy is, he's like a, a Mensa candidate. I met him once. You introduced me to him once. This guy is making stuff that I can't even dream about. So I'm a little bit nervous about him. But I know it's going to be a great session. And he always brings something new, as you say. And But before we get to Philip Preston, we've got a little bit of business to get out of the way. And as regular listeners of Every Other Thursday know by now, this is our 30 minutes or so. I'm guessing today we're going to run a little long because he's going to be so good. It's the 30 minutes or so podcast where we take on the world of hospitality and food service. And boy, it does need some help right now. And I think a guy like Philip Preston can really bring a lot to it. As always, this week's episode of Every Other Thursday is brought to you by Tabletop Journal. Tabletop Journal, where we celebrate the products, the people, and the places in the whole world of hospitality. So, Greg... You actually have a long-term relationship with Philip, and you know him a lot better than I. Can you, before he joins us uh, on the podcast, can you tell our listeners a little bit about who Philip is and 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 why uh, he's of particular interest to operators at this time? Sure, and I think that the most important thing is that he's an inventor and an innovator, and he's done a lot of invention and innovation in the world of culinary. So what this segment is all about is helping operators look at what their challenges are, what their problems are, be it labor, be it speed, cost, all those things, and how can they help mediate those, those problems by breaking, breaking them down, looking at each one individually. And Philip is an expert at that, bringing technology to the problem. And when I say bring technology – a lot of times, this doesn't, you don't need to have a degree in engineering to do this. This A lot of this stuff is very straightforward. It makes a lot of sense. But the world of culinary is often very um, traditional and rigid. And I, and I hope that people, when they're listening to this episode, think outside, outside their comfort zone. And because that's what it's going to take for people to survive, quite frankly. 
Yeah, and, 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 and survivability is, is really where we're at right now. And, and I know uh, from previous conversations that you and I have had, and then uh, the one or two times that you were uh, kind enough to put me together with Philip, he's a guy that's, that's, that is cool working with your independent restaurant, small independent restaurant uh, on the corner, and yet can still also work with three-star Michelin people like Thomas Keller and, and more, right? Sure. It could be in it, you know, all the way down to like it could be a pop-up booth all the way up to the, you know, the most famous restaurants and uh, chefs in the world. Sure. Well, that's cool. So I can't wait to get started. So let's get him on. Ladies and gentlemen, I want you to welcome Philip Preston to the podcast. Philip Preston from uh, PolyScience, welcome to Every Other Thursday. It's so great to have you here. I got so many questions for you. I don't even know where to begin. Greg has just given us a little bit of your background, but why don't you really fill in all the blanks and tell us a little bit about who Philip Preston is and particularly who PolyScience is. Well, sure. And thank you for inviting me to join you today. I am president of PolyScience. We've been producing precise temperature control equipment since 1963. Uh, it was founded by my father. I've been president since 1982, almost getting the hang of it. Through those years, you know, one would think Liquid temperature control would be a rather boring subject, but it's actually taken me to some incredibly exciting places. We have been working in industries and analytical laboratory is our kind of core business, but some of the more fun projects that I've worked on, I built the very first polymerase chain reaction unit, which no one really knows what that is, but you'd know it as the DNA amplification system, which has made possible all the forensic work and uh, genealogy work and such that uh, is used today. And kind of my claim to fame was I built the unit that tested OJ's glove. Over the years, we have built, you know, all sorts of, in, in every industry, liquid temperature control systems. And my entry to the culinary world actually came when our customer service person got a phone call from Matthias Murgis, who was chef de cuisine at Charlie Trotter's. And he, he said he wanted to cook in our laboratory equipment. And fortunately, this customer service person was really astute. She said, you know, I have no idea about what you're describing but our president loves to cook. And as a hobby, I had studied French cooking uh, in night school. So uh, she transferred the call to me and Matthias was, you know, more than gracious, invited me to come and see what the application was, taught me a little about it. And subsequently, I decided what a wonderful opportunity to merge my hobby with my profession. And, you know, this was actually back when Greg and I got to know one another through his days with National Restaurant Association. I had decided to exhibit at that show and we had a little 10 foot booth in the basement and we had a tremendous crowd of people at our booth because no one knew what the heck we were talking about with sous vide cooking. Wow. You know, back then, sous vide was totally unknown. And the only information on it was a book by Juan Roca that was in Spanish. And all I could decipher was the type of protein, the temperature, and the time. 
<laughs> I knew nothing else. So we evolved that business and I subsequently developed a lot of products for the, the culinary market. Wow. What, do you remember about what year that might have been? I want to say 2004, 2005 in that range. Wow. So what this is all about is you're an expert in controlling temperature, in liquid temperature. And so this is all about, a lot of what you're talking about is cooking at very precise temperature in water. Would that be the gist of it? You know, it's unfortunate that a French guy named the technique sous vide because really that, it translates to under vacuum, which has very little to do with the actual technique. It is, you know, we're very used to cooking with exposing foods to high heat and relying on precise timing. And sous vide is cooking with precise temperature, opening up your time window dramatically. So, you know, when someone... If I go to a restaurant, for example, they say, you know, and if I were to order a beef, they'd say, how would you like it done? I'm the guy that answers 136 degrees. Right, right. Oh, you're that guy. Yeah, I'm that <laughs> guy. <laughs> so, but then, but then you've actually went beyond, you know, the, the temperature control in liquid and, and have a whole host of innovations and patents, don't you? Oh, yeah. Well, one of the things that, you know, since we became known in the culinary field as a trendsetter, I always felt that it, you know, that was something that it kind of put a big burden on us, actually. We, we had to, you know, keep pulling the rabbit out of our hat. So right around that time, Grant Ackett's was, actually, he was working on recipe development for Alinea in his partner's kitchen, home kitchen. And so I got the opportunity to meet with Grant and Nick Kakonis and Really, our initial meeting was about sous vide equipment for Alinea. But after they toured my facility and saw all of the refrigerated products that I was building, Grant just made a comment, well, Philip, could you make a really cold plate? And I said, yeah, of course I could. And actually, I, I designed this product thinking that I would only build two, one for me and one for Grant. And it became the anti-griddle. And so it provides unidirectional freezing or cooling so you could do some really unique things with uh, texture and such, you know, having a frozen bottom and liquid top to something. It ended up having fairly broad applications. I mean, even down to, I remember selling a unit to a bar in Texas that just lined up shot glasses on it. So basically, it's a griddle, but instead of being hot, it's very, very, very cold. Right. right. Running at minus 30. Right. And then I developed another product. And again, this was one that I didn't really design it and bring it to market with the thought of making money. And I think that's kind of been a common theme in, in a lot of this. I'm not suggesting that that's, you know, the key to success, but... I think that taking a little bit of risk and just pursuing an idea and it, see, well, it may not work. It, you know, this could be a complete failure, but you have to be willing to take that risk. The next product I launched, I called it the smoking gun. And the inspiration for it actually was I was at a CompUSA store and I saw the absolute dumbest product I had ever seen in my life. It was a 
it took four AA batteries and it was a keyboard vacuum cleaner. And the idea of vacuum buying something to vacuum my keyboard, just I saw that and I started laughing. I don't what a ridiculous thought, but then I looked at it and I saw that, well, okay, this is a little blower and air comes in here and it goes out there. And so I bought two of them, went to the hardware store, and in a matter of about 15 minutes, I had screwed some plumbing fixtures on it and made it so that I could fill a bowl with wood chips, light it, and blast smoke out of this thing. And I built, I think, four of them. And I sent one of them off to Wiley Dufresne in a friend. Yeah. WD forfeit. Yeah. And I said, Wiley, you know, if anyone's going to get a kick out of it, you will. Well, then all of his friends saw it. And so then I, I built 10 more. And then their friends saw it. And I built 50. And all of this was based on this keyboard vacuum cleaner. And, and I was actually buying the bowls for pot pipes out of Canada to screw them in. <laughs> screw them in. Then finally I decided, oh, the heck with it. I'll just tool this thing and really do it right. We tooled it up and it ended up at, you know, Williams Sonoma and Sur La Table. And I can't remember, we were probably selling close to 50,000 a year of those things. And then selling the sawdust for them. You know, you buy a kit of sawdust for $39.95. And so it kind of became that perfect stocking stuffer. But <laughs> the cool thing is, it gave people an ability to smoke things they'd never smoked before. I could have a party and serve, you know, a baguette and smoked butter. I still am smoking soups quite often. Uh, I think one of the more fun things, early on I did a video. I said, well, since you can't go into a bar anymore and order a drink and have your cigar, I, I did a Cuban cigar smoked Manhattan in one of my early videos. And then also, we'd, I'd smoke water and freeze it and just serve bourbon on the rocks with smoked ice. And the fun thing is the drink gets smokier and smokier as the ice melts. Wow. That was another one that I brought to market. That And one of the key things for me was always, if it's already there, I didn't want to do it. You know, that, that was one of the most important things for me. And quite often... You know, whether it's the lab industry or the culinary industry, when I'd walk the show floors at, at these big trade shows, my standard line when I'd come back to the booth was, yeah, there's a new button on the dishwasher, you know, and that's it. It's, it's all product evolution. And I think probably the hardest thing to see is, you know, what isn't in the kitchen that could be. So that was always my mantra. And, and we ended up bringing out products like uh, rotary vacuum evaporator. So this is vacuum distillation. So it's basically a still, but the cool thing about it is that you're doing it at say room temperature because you can boil at room temperature under vacuum and it allows you to really capture aromatics. So you, you know, I started doing things like making clear Bloody Marys or just blending basil and vodka redistilling it back and I'd end up with again a clear vodka but it was had all the aromatics of the basil and as Greg knows I have a big garden here and matter of fact we've even made hard cider together uh, and those batches of hard cider that didn't quite work out ended up going in the rotavap 
and I'd make Calvados. And then that led to another product launch. I launched a product called the Sonic Prep. And the Sonic Prep is in the lab world, we call them cell disruptors. And so it's a, it's like a stick blender is what it looks like, only there's no moving parts. It's an ultrasonic probe that you can stick into a liquid. And it's going to act like a 40,000 pulse per second pump. And so when, you, when I would make the Calvados, I'd float oak chips on top of it and then hit it with ultrasonics for three minutes. And it was as though I had barrel aged it for three years. Wow. And so it's a, a tremendous tool for flavor infusions, and it will also create emulsions. See, what I like about what you've just said, I only understood about half of what you said, okay? So that's cool. But, but what I love about it is you get down to, it felt like it was barrel aged for three years. I, I mean, see, that, that it's, it's very complicated, it sounds like, on the front end, but it produces a, what I would call very tactile and a very straightforward product at the end, whether it's a smoking gun or the sonic prep or whatever. That, that, is that a common theme in some of the things that you use? Well, you know, and I, I always look at the problems I'm experiencing in the kitchen. And, and again, it's just my lack of patience. I'm not going to wait three years to barrel age my Calvados. And so then you start looking at other methodologies and doing things under, uh, under pressure, you know, flavor infusions through, say, a whip canister. That's a totally viable approach. But in wanting to process more volume, I, I thought that ultrasonics was going to be a really interesting way to go. And so it's really just taking look at the problem and then say, what could I do to fix this? And actually, one of my most recent patents, literally, it's, this isn't a product that's even on the market yet, relates to sous vide cooking. Because at first, when uh, with sous vide, you know, you could rely on time temperature charts. And you'd say, okay, I measure the thickness of the meat. I know its shape. It's a slab shape. It's, you know, an inch and a half thick. And you can do very, very good predictive models. As a matter of fact, I, I launched an app called the PolyScience Sous Vide Toolbox. That you would enter all the parameters. Here's my start temperature, my desired core temperature, and we can model the thermal conductivity of proteins very precisely. And I even had the uh, app validated by one of the foremost authorities in uh, modified atmosphere packaging food safety who works with, he works in writing the regulations. And he came back to us and said, you know, this is, it's incredible. It works beautifully, but you will never get a health department to allow it because the health department will always mandate measured temperature and they cannot accept predictive, no matter how accurate your predictive data is. And my contention was always that when a chef sticks a hypodermic probe into a sous vide bag, number one, they've introduced the chance that the bag is going to leak, even though they're using a closed cell phone Band-Aid on the bag. But then what are the chances that a chef is actually going to hit core? As a matter of fact, at a trade show once, I, 
I was giving out little plastic, you know, micrometers so chefs could actually measure the thickness of the food and then, you know, put your thumb at that point on the probe and insert it and try and hit core. So I, I still believe that, that that current methodology, even though that's the mandated approach, I think it's, it's a horrible approach. And so I started looking at ways that you could accurately measure the core. And the first thought, of course, is, well, I'll just take a temperature sensor with a, and, and Bluetooth it to my phone. The problem there is that I can't have a battery in proximity to the food because if I inserted a battery-powered probe into the food, if the battery ever failed, now I have heavy metals commingling with my food. I'm, that, I'm trying to avoid that. <laughs> okay. wow. So I just designed and patented an energy harvesting probe system. So with as little as two watts of light in the room, it'll harvest the light energy until it comes up with its 1.2 volts to fire up a microprocessor. The microprocessor reads the temperature and sends it by radio signal back to a measurement device. Now, I also solved the problem of hitting core with the same device because I actually put six temperature sensing devices in the hypodermic probe. So the chef just inserts the probe as long as he's more than halfway in, it doesn't really matter. And when it pings back the readings, it's going to ping back all six sensors and the coldest of those automatically is core. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. So I wanted to make something that solved both of those problems, putting a hole in the bag and also self-determination of core. So along this way, along this journey, you hear these great ideas, very practical, solving solutions, making life easier for operators and making other opportunities for suppliers. You know, so we, you know, and we're in a situation now where everyone, suppliers on the supply side and operator side, is just living in hurt and trying to figure out the way forward. So you've touched on a bunch of the, you know your, the processes, the th how your you know your thought pattern. But if somebody has to innovate, do you have a formula? Can you address that a little bit? You know, I I have to say first of all, gosh, I you know I I've made so many friends in the restaurant industry, and I this current situation we're in is tragic. It it's just so sad to see what everyone is being faced with. And, you know, right now, I think, you know, the only mantra I could come up with is live to fight another day. We're in survival mode. You know, certainly I have seen some real, real interesting successes. I'm going to say pre-COVID of ways that restaurants utilized some of the technology that, that I created. You know, Greg, I remember sharing with you there was a little Vietnamese uh, sandwich shop that I walked into in Washington, D.C. And when the guy found out I was the president of PolyScience, he said, oh, I want, to, I want to show you our kitchen. And we walked in the back room and there were eight PolyScience sous vide circulators and one chamber vacuum sealer. And that was the entire kitchen. They were making bami sandwiches and literally all they do is pull a bag out 
and put it into a tray and put that, you know, when the customer ordered, they just put that into the, the bun and that's it. And, you know, I, I think that sous vide actually offers a tremendous opportunity. It's funny because, you know, I always thought that maybe the reason the French discovered the technique, and it was Bruno Gousseau who actually dis- discovered this, who was a food scientist and was used to working with laboratory baths. But I always thought it was funny because uh, labor laws in France are, I'll just say, challenging. It's almost like you're getting married. And so I always thought it was perfect for, for France because, you know, you can't really staff a restaurant and just say, well, you know, I'm going to staff the restaurant all week for the Friday, Saturday demand. And with sous vide, what a lot of restaurants have been able to do is lower the staffing and balance that workload so that, you know, on Tuesdays and Wednesdays, the chefs are really doing a cook chill sous vide. And then when the demand hits, they're able to just re-therm and still achieve that perfect result. That's probably one of the best applications that I've seen for real cost savings. I think the other aspect in sous vide that offers some very interesting cost savings is if you took, let's just say, a a steak, cooked it in a traditional method with high heat and put it on a grill or a flat top, and then compared it, let's say you started with two identical steaks, cook one sous vide, and then all you're doing is giving it a Maillard reaction, a high heat reaction, just all you're doing is getting color on it after the sous vide. You would find they start identically and the one that you cooked in a traditional method, you'll lose 25% of the weight. And what's happening is as soon as you expose a protein to a temperature greater than 70 degrees centigrade, roughly 170F, you break cell structure and moisture comes out. And so if you cook the, the protein sous vide, you aren't breaking that cell structure. So you inherently retain, as I said, 25% more product. And so it's as though if you could go into a restaurant and say, hey, I can get you a 25% discount on your proteins, I think they would be very excited about it. So it's, it sounds like, you know, what the operator needs to do is just because a lot of times people don't even know where their heads are spinning and they don't even know where to start. But just take a, a good look, an inventory of all their processes and say, where can I make improvements? What would be a better outcome here? What would be easier? And then just attack it one by one. Would that make sense? Yeah. And I think, you know, we have to look at this kind of a situation when polyscience, certainly we are feeling the effects of you know, as the rest of the world is. And I'm looking at this as this is the perfect opportunity to look at my systems, my efficiencies, where can we do something a little better and try and save some cost for when the normal orders start coming back. And so, again, unfortunately, you know, I've we're in a business with, you know, selling, let's say, a chiller that's going to be uh, married to a laser. It's one of my big business. Well, no one's buying lasers today. You 
no one's out there making big capital expenditures. They're they're just trying to stay uh, stay alive and milk the equipment that they've got. And you know, I think that this is a great opportunity, though, for that. Let's look for the efficiencies. And you know, for example, a big component of sous vide is typically going to be that chamber vacuum sealer. Well, that chamber vacuum sealer would be working overtime in this climate to help me accommodate that to-go business. Because I think, especially in some of the high margin business, like the cocktail business, I can't hand someone a glass or, or even a plastic cup full of a of my wonderful cocktail to go, you know, because transporting open alcohol in a car is, is frowned on, uh, last I checked with the uh, Illinois police. So if it's in a cryovac bag, it's a sealed container, you know, and, and I think that would, I would see that as safe to transport. It's also going to be a great method for your soups and potentially as is the case with, when I look at Cuisine Solutions, their product range, a lot of this is being sold to restaurant business. It's, I consider it a fairly high level, but it's all, it's all sous vide cooked product. And there's no reason that sous vide cooked meals couldn't be put in a to-go and rethermed at home the way Cuisine Solutions does it. They don't say you have to have a sous vide bath. You know, they give kind of a formula on the bag saying, okay, drop this bag in this much boiling water and it brings it to an appropriate temperature without losing too much of the quality. Yeah, we're here today. I'm going to take a break right now, but we're here today with Philip Preston. Philip is the president of PolyScience. And Philip, you said something earlier, and I want to circle back around it. It, it basically get your take on it. You said when, you, when you're looking to come up with an innovation, you look at the problem and you ask uh, just a generic question, what could we do to fix this? Well, I can't think of a bigger time where our industry, the culinary industry and the restaurant industry has more problems. And they're at a uh, very deep, deep level. And I want to come back and I want to get your take on, we talk a lot on the front of the house here on every other Thursday, front of the house issues. You're really focused on the back of the house and processes and, and, and bringing it forward. So I want to get your take on those kinds of problems and what you think that some near-term solutions might be there because... Obviously, uh, profitability and revenue streams are at an all-time uh, low in our industry, I think, in our lifetime. And I love your idea about cocktails to go. We've talked, we have another podcast. We talked a lot about cocktails to go. I love the idea of cocktails to go because of the profitability in cocktails to go, but also from the branding, the marketing of it. So we're going to take a break right now with Philip Preston, and we're going to come right back, and we'll get his thoughts and more. This episode of Every Other Thursday is brought to you by TabletopJournal.com. For more than eight years, Tabletop Journal has been raising the awareness of just how important Tabletop is to the overall guest dining experience. Using the hashtag TabletopMatters, Tabletop Journal has connected the kindred spirits of the hospitality world all around the globe. TabletopJournal.com, where we celebrate the products, the people, and the places all in the world of hospitality tabletop. Now, back to our podcast. 
Okay, everybody, we're back here with Philip Preston. As I uh, mentioned in the intro, we're, we're minus Jay Alley today, but Greg Kirish and I are here, and we're Philip Preston from PolyScience, and I'm learning a whole bunch of stuff here. But in the break, we were just talking that the restaurant business has never been in our lifetimes been the way it is now, and it's it's got some really big, big mountains to climb over and some incredible challenges. And one of the challenges that still, in my opinion, lays out in front of it is the commercial real estate issue. And I think that that's going to be a problem to contend with over the next couple months. But aside from that, during this comeback, I think things that Philip was talking about in the first segment, Philip, you, you, you brought up a bunch of different things about changing processes and, and, and so on, and how some different types of thinking, different uh, back of the house type processes can help operators not only come back and survive, but to actually thrive. And I think over the next year or so, we're going to start to see maybe maybe year two, three, we're going to see lots of new concepts coming in to replace the ones that have gone away. And, and there's going to be lots of opportunity for products like PolyScience, as it sounds like. So I want to talk about that. I want to get your view, Philip. I want to start off with your view of where, what some of those basic problems that operators will have and what are some of the solutions to it as you, from your point of view. Well, I think actually, I wish I wish I had the answers for that one. Certainly, you know, I think that we're all going to be all of all of these operators are going to be faced with a huge challenge of in this short term of keeping enough revenue stream to keep the quality people that they have developed over the many years. And I think that I know it, at PolyScience, I consider our greatest asset is this wonderful team of people that we've put together that really understand the business, understand the culture, understand our commitment to quality, our ethics. And I think that's going to be one of the hardest things to do is, you know, when, when you just don't have that cash flow, I'll share with you that the approach I had to take back in 2009 when we saw this dramatic economic downturn, you know, everything on paper said that I should immediately lay off seven people. And I got the entire team in the lunchroom and I explained the situation to them. And I said, guys, you know, I'm, I, I'm very optimistic. I think we're only looking at maybe two months, maybe four months. I don't know. But you know, I want you all to look at the guy next to you and say, you know, we shouldn't have a devastating impact on this person. So I'm going to ask everyone in here to move to a four-day work week, sharing a little of the pain, making it so that everyone can make it through the crisis. All we're trying to do is get to the other side right now. As I said earlier, I think the main objective is to live to fight another day. And I think that the people who can get creative to keep the team together where maybe everyone is taking a little bit of the pain, those guys are going to be the ones to come back faster and stronger because there's nothing worse than being in, a, in that economic upswing, trying to find quality people, number one, trying to train them. You'll kiss a few frogs that don't turn into princes. <laughs> and so 
you know, anything you can do, I think, to keep a team together and get that team as focused as possible on what can we do not only to maintain some revenue stream today, but also long-term, how can we drive efficiencies in this process while you have the time to focus on it? Yeah, I think it's uh, we're, the habits uh, are changing dramatically. And I, I, I think that a lot of this carry out and take away, I'm not sure it's ever going to go away. I mean, a lot of people have just jumped into it and kind of finding their way just as, as, on an emergency basis. But I think probably there's some belief now that Hey, this isn't so bad, and and people people are used to curbside pickup and so forth. And of course, you've got gazillions of dollars of venture capital being poured into delivery services. So, I think that the the, the lifestyle, the human behavior issue, we're teed up ready for that takeaway. In addition to the dining in, that said, the dining in is where we all do the connection. Right. And I think human beings, the, one, of the, one of the key underlying axioms that I have about the restaurant business is that human beings are hardwired for connection. And they connect the best when it's sitting around a table with family and friends and people you love. And restaurants provide that opportunity in that forum, for, obviously. But right now, it's difficult. So I think the conversion to carry out and take away is going to remain. And I, I'd be curious. I want to circle. I, I don't want to do it right now, but before we leave today, I want to circle back around to the cocktails to go because everybody talks about how profitable cocktails are. And I get all that, but I also want to talk about the branding of the restaurants through that process. So, but what, what types of things does PolyScience have that would offer to, that would be uh, interesting to operators to help with that backside, that back of the house processes as they're coming out to sort of, because labor is going to be an issue. I, I agree with you. Well, I think, you know, certainly adopting sous vide is something that is going to help restaurants uh, retain a high level of quality while dropping labor content and also reducing the cost of proteins kind of tied into that. And, and you know, it's not a huge investment, a, a typical sous vide unit is you know uh, well under a thousand dollars it's not a huge investment a little uh, bigger investment ends up being the chamber vacuum sealer which actually a lot of restaurants already have in place and i see that as well number one it's a it's almost an essential for sous vide but additionally it's going to give you that vehicle to handle say the cocktails to go one of my friends uh wonderful restaurant in Evanston here, Chef Mark Gross reached out to me yesterday about sous vide confit duck legs. And I was thinking to myself when we were exchanging the texts on, you know, how to properly prepare the, uh, or at least my approach to a confit, I was thinking to myself, you know, the pizza chains and all that are just doing gangbusters business. And I'm only going to eat so much pizza myself, okay? Uh, you know, it's fine. I love Chicago pizza, but once every three to four weeks is about my limit. And I was thinking to myself, the one thing I failed to do yesterday in my exchange with Mark was, you know, I said, well, Oceanique has a to-go program, and I would love Mark's confit duck leg handed to me in a, cha- in a vacuum seal bag. I'm going to be much more interested in that than a pizza. 
what's really interesting about a confit duck leg, of course, is you've got phenomenal shelf life on that. Right. And that, I guess that kind of leads to something that I've been thinking about is like, you know, a lot of these techniques, because of the technology, you know, a lot of it, your patents, your inventions, you know, that these didn't exist, you know, back during the uh, Scoffier time when French cuisine was being codified. So a lot of chefs now and operators think you're somehow cheating. Well, it's not cheating. It's just new technology because a lot of times the, the product now is actually better and can be made at a lower cost with less people and applied to the guest, you know, in better form, better taste. So I guess it's, it's a, it is a matter of just thinking through what are the problems, what are the challenges, and then, and then finding, and finding the solutions. And the solutions do exist to a lot of these things. I think so. I, I think that, you know, you're right that for me, quite, I always tell people, hey, even if it's cheating, the objective is always how do I achieve a perfect result with as little pain as possible? And Absolutely. Fortunately, there's no one that's going to throw the flag on me in my home kitchen. I know that. Isn't always the target result? Isn't it always a happy guest? Yeah. Yeah. How you get there, you know. Yeah, I think that when you start reading ingredients lists on most processed foods, not for me, that's cheating. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think that uh, there are definitely improvements in processes and, and improvements in shelf life of foods and, and things like that that are, are just fundamental requirements. I mean, not only in the restaurant business, but I'm thinking about in the healthcare business. Because we have a great, we have an aging society. And I say this, whether it's front of the house or it's back of the house, I think the healthcare and senior dining, senior living category, I think is way down the road in terms of huge opportunities because you've got a, a generation of foodie people, people who, even if they're not truly knowledgeable, they believe they are. And I think there's a way that changes in uh, processes and in, in, in equipment, whether it be sous vide or others, that can really... See, I, I'm a big proponent of food and beverage leading the way of differentiating whether it's senior living properties, whether it's cruise ships, whether it's hotels or, or your neighborhood restaurant. And I think that food and beverage, you can really differentiate yourself through that and add value to that. And I can't think of a better place where there's it's ripe for improvement still after all these years than healthcare and senior living. Yeah. And we've been talking a lot here about things back of the house. But, you know, I should just say that ostensibly we're all under tabletop. And so the point is, is that there's a lot of things that can happen on the tabletop with these technologies that are fun. All the things we've been talking about, actually, at least up until the pandemic, of fun, they add drama, they add intrigue, it engages the guest. But, you know, let's let's face it, right now, I think that we're, we're kind of more in the equation, more looking at back of the house, you know, and just trying to get through this. But there's, this is, these are topics that we certainly should address once we get on the other side of the pandemic. Yeah, I think it's a survive mode. Yeah. Or to use Philip's words, to live to fight another day. Right. Yeah. I find 
you know, of course, like everyone else, I've got three kids and I find myself cooking more and more and more. You know, that's this is now it's the three meals a day that I'm preparing. And so, you know, Greg, to use your uh, analogy there, I am cheating it a little bit. You know, where, you know, if I'm making a crepe batter, I have a cryovac bag. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've got the next gallon of crepe batter ready to go next week. And uh, there are a lot of things. I always have my at least six diet types of soup in my uh, in my freezer ready to go. And, of course, my confit duck legs and my beef stews and all of those things. And, and so there's really, you know, I, I would equate the same kind of opportunities are out there, especially in this to-go environment to provide something of a high level that, you know, they can provide for pickup that, that has a little different twist. You know, uh, Greg, you, I know you're a avid mushroom forager. And uh, <laughs> I remember the last time you gave me a big hen in the woods mushroom to cook with, I ended up making a huge batch of mushroom soup and then I apple smoked it with the smoking gun. And it just made it that little notch different, a little bit more special. And I think that's what the restaurants have to look towards is, you know, why are they, why would someone want to have my mushroom soup instead of the guy next door? I mean, that's always our job is to, is to say, yeah, this one that I'm providing you is bringing a little more fun drama, a little more of a twist, something that I can share then with my family and say, yeah, this is a little special. And Philip, you left out two more things for the restaurateur and the chef. You left out, it'll bring in a little more fun, a little more drama, but also a little more revenue and a little more profitability, right? Exactly. So you should be able to charge for that smoke, mushroom soup. Right. We'll charge a little more for it. So I think that's great. Philip, what do you, I keep hearing, and I heard it again earlier today in some other forum about robots, just generally robots. Do you have any opinion on that? I know poly science probably doesn't do robotic type things because you're more into, I think, thermal controls and all that. But what about robots in the back of the house? I think we're a long ways. I think we're a long ways from that because, you know, from my experience in working with robots, they are extremely good at very repetitive tasks. But if you look at the day in a life of someone working in a restaurant, there's, okay, I've got this, you know, I'm spending this hour cutting, I'm doing, spending this hour cleaning, I'm spending this hour doing this job. It, they're all over the map. And I think that becomes then very, very challenging for any, for, for the level of automation. You know, it's funny because before this call, I was thinking to myself, how would I manage it if I had one of these restaurants that was based on the buffet line kind of, I've got all these open containers and I'm going to put this pasta and this sauce or this salad and these croutons and all of those types of things. And that is a real, you know, that model just isn't going to fly in the, in the future. And you know, I don't see any other option for those people other than to actually add labor content to that and turn it into more like, okay, someone will be there, you know, more like I'm having someone make a Subway sandwich for me or something like that. But then, then I had the, uh, you know, then 
if you really wanted to add the fun to it, it would be more like one of those little uh, grabbers in the game, you know, where you're trying to pick up the dial and drop it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, let's get, uh, I'm going to circle back around to a little bit on the cocktails to go segment. What, you know, I, I should get a commission for all the cocktails that were good to go out there. But we've been talking with a gentleman in Copenhagen about cocktails to go, and it seems like cocktails to go are, are they're, they're a little bit ahead of us there. Although some of the states now have loosened up either at least temporarily or permanent wise. And I, last time I looked, I think it was 32 or 34 of the states now you can actually sell cocktails to go. But even today, there was a, a, a restaurant in, I think, Birmingham, Alabama, that was selling a Sunday night supper for two with wine and punch with it and, and, and selling those as a package to carry out and to take away. So I, I think, number one, I'd be curious to get your thoughts on what operators can do to to streamline that process in an innovative packaging. Yeah, I think you mentioned a couple before, but I, I'd like to talk a little bit more about that. And then also, then I want to circle back around about differentiating through a marketing of those products. How can operators make uh, cocktails to go easier for them and better for the guest? Well, again, you know, I, I, I'm not a, a mixologist, but when I was a uh, keynote speaker at the Jackson Hole Food and Wine Festival, they actually asked if I could use one of their sponsors. I think it was uh, Wyoming Distilleries. Uh, they wanted me to use one of their sponsors' uh, bourbon and show them a cocktail that I made sous vide. And so what I ended up doing was it was a spin on a, uh, a Manhattan, but by cooking it, you know, vacuum sealing it and cooking it sous vide for a period of time, I was able to really extract a tremendous amount of flavor from the herbs and such that I had put in with it and the cherries that were in there. And I pre-made all of these. I think I was providing cocktails for well over 250 people. And I showed up to this event with just a bunch of one gallon cryovac bags. And so it, it couldn't have been easier, you know? And I think, you know, that type of an approach is how do I make life super easy? And, and how do I offer something that has a really unique character to it? I think for me, I'm gonna share a quick story, actually uh, a sideline maybe from that. And that is that when my brother announced to me he was going to get married, I said, well, my gift, now, now my brother lives in northern Wisconsin. He's, he's so far away from town, he has to walk towards town to hunt. <laughs> you know, he's out in the middle of the woods and, and he was saying, we're going to do this in a tent, just in a clearing, basically. And so I was thinking, oh, there's going to be a dozen people. So I said, well, my gift to you then is I will cater the event for you. Well, I didn't know that there were going to be over 200 people at this event. And I'm single-handed, 200 people, and I had four outlets. No cooking, nothing. No other cooking equipment. You know, you'd say, well, that would be nearly impossible. But I did have a, a charcoal grill, and he had one of those uh, propane-fired turkey deep fryers. Oh, geez. And so I had the four outlets with four sous vide baths, and we had uh, 
136 degree beef tenderloin that I just pulled the whole tenderloins out, marked them on the grill and sliced them. I had confit duck legs that I would open the bag, drop for literally 45 seconds in this turkey deep fryer and plate them. I had carrots in a cumin butter that I would literally open the bag and plate. Mashed potatoes, the Jean Robuchon variety of copious amounts of butter and literally just chopping Yukon Golds, put them in a bag, cook them at 84 degrees centigrade, and then pound the bag with your fist and you've got perfectly mashed potatoes. So to do a, an event like that and have a perfect result for that quantity of people really, to me, was a testament to how you can do a cook chill, prepare using your labor way up front, and also how you can take that product, retherm it, get it on a plate for a perfect result with a dramatically reduced labor content. Well, there's certainly, so there's certainly a lot of lessons there in a wedding reception that can be taken to operators. Yeah, I think if people really embrace the technology, you know, learned how to how to have it really work for them. You know, sadly, if you have the equipment, then look at ways to better utilize it. I just, I don't think this is really the time to speak about, uh, you know, certainly I, I hope no one takes this as a sales pitch because I, I think a lot of people are in the same mode I'm in right now. And how do I do with what I have and do the best with what I have today? I would agree with you, but only to a point, Philip. I, I think that as we start to come out of this, I think people are going to be looking for quick ways to, to come out of the gate quickly. And despite all the difficulties and the challenges in our, in our culinary and the restaurant world and, and so forth, there's still a lot of money around for certain good ideas and for, and for good operators. So, so I think for somebody to come and invest money in what I would call process improvements, where you can deliver a consistently high quality product with less people on your payroll and you can produce better to go products. I, 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 again, I don't want to harp on too much on cocktails to go, but I, I think everything, to go, everything is to go right now, but I think to go will stay as, as a concept. I think people have, I mean, Listen, if you want to change behavior, you don't change it in a couple of weeks, but after a while, after three, four or five months now, people's behaviors will change. And yes, I understand the connection, the human connect kind of thing, but people are still going to be taking away a year from now. I know that. And I really love what you're doing. By the way, I'm going to do the sales pitch for you at the end uh, I, I, because I want people, I want any operator who's struggling with how to get ramped back up. I want them to call you at PolyScience. So I'm going to, I'm going to give out the website. You can give the phone number in a minute, but Greg, what else can we ask this? This guy is unbelievable. When he tells me about all this scientific stuff, which is so far above my pay grade, and he then brings it right down to punching bag, cryovac bags with his fist to make sure the potatoes are mashed, I got to love that. There's a guy that's living in the real world, a scientist living in the real world, right? Right. And, and that's, that's why I think it's very exciting because, we're, we're, you know, in this case, of course, we're focusing on, you know, a couple of things, sous vide and, and the smoking gun. But, you know, beyond that, there are a lot of things out there, that, a lot of concepts, a lot of machines, a lot of tools that are very accessible that, 
you know, it just it just takes another way of thinking. So identify what the problem is. What do you want to do? I want to make this faster. I want to make this better. I want it to char it more. Whatever it might be, take that and then find a solution. And I know that's easier said. I know that's a lot easier said than done. But there is, there is. I guess the, the point is there is a lot of hope out there, and and some people are going to do this and they're going to succeed. I wanted to add to that, Greg, that I think this is the perfect time to also kind of take that little bit of a reflection and say, you know, what is it that, you know, maybe I take for granted? You know, I, I mentioned earlier that I make a gallon of crepe batter for my kids uh, and, you know, it's just sitting there in the cryovac bag ready to go. And I'm going to tell you, I make a better crepe batter than almost anyone I've ever come across. Of course, you know, there's the the, the little grommier in there and this, you know, it's not just the uh, the basic, you know, out of the book batter. And and I think that when we look at things like my crepe, for example, or, or soups, the beauty of these things is they are they lend themselves extremely well to a to go situation. They also are typically extremely high margin products. And I think that, you know, for a chef to look at look at it and say, well, you know, my normal world is this. But when I'm home, when I make something for my kids, I make this and it's really good. I do that that simple thing really a lot better. So along this, I'm going to take a, tell a really quick story. So Florence Fabricant is a reporter, a food reporter for the New York Times. She still is. Yeah, still is. And just reported about a story that was done in the 90s where the Americans, if I get this straight, the American Steel Can Association approached a lady that was an editor, Bon Appetit, about how they can get people to use more canned vegetables and fruits. And the idea she came up with, which I just think is genius, is that they take, you know, these canned fruits, put it in your freezer, it freezes, and but it, because it's so much, there's sugar in there, so it doesn't freeze solid. So you open up the can, put the can in your food processor. In my case, I tried this with frozen apricots that were canned, put in two tablespoons of uh, amaretto, Swirl it, and it is a fantastic dessert. Now, is that cheating in terms of classic cuisine? Yes, but this is the kind of thing that I could say I would pay for this. You know, it's it's uh, if I was in a restaurant, and it'd be something. These are the kind of like ideas that are going to save some people by providing at a very easily cost-effective way to please the guests. And in this case very low technology. All you need is a freezer and a food processor. Yeah. So just another example. Well, I, I think this is great. I have one quick question for you, Philip, before we wrap it all up. Do your products go into supermarkets at all? I know supermarkets are a great place for people to get foods now, prepared foods and, and different types. Now, but do supermarkets use your products at all? Like, because I, I would think that would be a great segment. There have been some that have adopted technology. It's typically... It's been the guys that are really looking to the higher end takeaway, guys like Wegmans and such. Yeah, that's exactly who I had in mind. Yeah, yeah. Those are the kind of guys that have adopted the technology, but not too much outside of that. 
And I'll tell you another segment that uh, I, I love to bring you back on at some point and talk about these different segments and where these products, where, what, where these products could help improve them, is that more and more of us are, as a society, are eating six meals a day, whatever, on the run, grab and go, and you have a handful of convenience stores who have figured out the food and beverage business pretty well so far. And they're going to continue to exploit that. I think people like Sheets and Wawa and all that, they're just situated in the right spot. And they're making more and more of their profitability off what I would call food service type items. So they're going to be looking to continue to, again, make their processes back of the house. I have to imagine this more efficient, more consistent, and obviously leading to more profitability. Yeah. Delivering a better product to the consumer at less price. And, you know, there are places that have adopted a lot of these techniques already. You just don't really know about it. For example, Chipotle, their proteins are cooked sous vide already. Cool. Well, this has been fascinating, Philip. I really appreciate you joining us today. Hopefully we haven't scared you away from every other Thursday. and You'll come back and join us and we can talk about some of these specific segments. And what we've got to do, I, I love your living to fight another day approach. And I agree with you. I think that's kind of where we're at right now. But I do think that there are things with minimal investment, it sounds like. And I want to, I want to get the website right. It's polyscience.com. Is that correct? The polyscience.com would be the laboratory part of the business and polysciencecullinary.com would point you to the culinary product range. Oh, great. Great. Is there a phone number or whatever that you want to give? Because I would tell every every operator right now and bar, bar manager especially to get in touch with you on their to-go program. You know, probably given the situation we're in right now with, I don't have anyone inside the building today and customer service, sales, et cetera, they're all remote. And so probably going through the online contact is going to get the quickest response. Okay. It's Philip Preston, everybody. It's Polyscience Polyculinary. Polysciencecullinary.com. Thank you so much for being with us. We hope you'll come back and join us again sometime very, very soon. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. This episode of Every Other Thursday has been brought to you by TabletopJournal.com. For more than eight years, Tabletop Journal has been raising the awareness of just how important Tabletop is to the overall guest dining experience. Using the hashtag TabletopMatters, Tabletop Journal has connected the kindred spirits of the hospitality world all around the globe. TabletopJournal.com, where we celebrate the products, the people, and the places, all in the world of hospitality tabletop. Thanks for joining us today for this episode of Every Other Thursday. You can learn more about Every Other Thursday by visiting our website, everyotherthursdaypodcast.com.